This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, we approach that dreaded anniversary again, 9-11. Twelve years now since the attack on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and Shanksville, and also one year since the attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya. They claimed the life of our U.S. ambassador, Chris Stevens, and five others. We'll be talking with Sam Katz, who, with Fred Burton, has just published Under Fire, the untold story of the attack in Benghazi, a riveting account that first saw daylight in an excerpt in Vanity Fair over the summer that held me spellbound. It's an astonishing story that's bound for the studios. Then, switching gears, September also brings the return of the NFL to our TV screens. And we'll catch up with my friend Doug Mills, the great New York Times photographer who covers every aspect of the White House. This week, he was on Capitol Hill following Secretary of State John Kerry as he tried to sell Congress on authorizing military force against Syria. If he's lucky, Doug might find himself on the busman's holiday this season, roaming the sidelines shooting pictures of the Washington Redskins as Robert Griffin III returns to the backfield. But first, we go to New York, Sam Katz, and the author of Under Fire, the untold story of the attack in Benghazi. Welcome, sir, to Polyoptics. Thank you for having me. Sam, this is a story of an act of terrorism with broad political dimensions, but it's also the story of a little-known agency of government, the DS, and how it has transformed with the times. When I worked in the White House for President Clinton, traveled with Secretary Warren Christopher, Secretary Madeleine Albright, the DS agents were there, but they sort of really took a back seat to the Secret Service, which managed security on so many of our overseas trips. Tell us about this agency and how it's evolved since its old SY days. Well, um, having worked in the White House, I'm sure that you, um, you saw how the DS agents working with Secretary of State Christopher and Secretary of State Albright always had to do a lot with very little. Yeah. The agency is um, a small agency. It actually predates both the FBI and the Secret Service, um, I'm sorry, and the CIA. It was formed in 1916, and it has really been a small, unheralded agency of very innovative, very personable, and very forward-thinking um, young men and women um, who have dedicated their careers and sometimes um, their lives to protecting um, U.S. diplomats and diplomatic posts around the world. The agency is small. It is a small office in um, inside the the huge bureaucracy that is the State Department. And in fact, there was a report out of the New York Times yesterday that there was an internal um, request for opinions as to how to um, streamline operations for diplomatic security. And one of the suggestions was that it be removed from the umbrella of the Office of Management inside the State Department and become its own entity and its own bureau where it will have a seat at the table. When, when the Foreign Service, when um, the State Department decides to open up an embassy or do something around the world, the diplomatic security service professionals that really know the security and will be tasked with maintaining um, the protection of these um, facilities don't have a seat at the table. They don't get to um, weigh in on their decisions. They're told to do something, and they go where they're told. Let's drill down then, Sam, first of all, to how you became interested in the DS. Uh, in your acknowledgments, you talk about meeting Fred uh, in about February of 1995 and uh, focusing on the arrest of Ramzi Youssef, and you were talking with some of the NYPD guys, and uh, they mentioned the DS as an interesting topic for you, and you sort of scratched your head and you said, what, the Department of Sanitation? Well, I was very lucky. Um that I had spent quite a lot of time with the NYPD's emergency service unit, and I had uh, I was writing um, several books on them, and I happened to have been in the right place at the right time on the night in February 1995 when they brought Ramzi Yusuf in from Pakistan, and I remember one of the FBI agents telling me that um, yeah that was our great achievement we did that, and then later when um, when that um, ESU officer um, in, in Manhattan um, called me and said my next book should be about DS and I said you know D who and I spoke to some of the agents, um, and they explained to me that, indeed, it was them who arrested Ramzi Yusuf in Pakistan. And they really opened this new world to me of a very intrepid force of um, very personable. One of the um, 
one of the attributes of being a diplomatic security service is and having had to do more with less is they have great personalities they um they shake hands they work crowds and they rely on the benevolence and cooperation of others and they were very very friendly to me and i i was grateful for the um opportunity and when i started working with them and writing articles about them i covered a mini un general assembly in in new york and i met fred burton who was working the counterterrorism desk and we became friends and um when and then i wrote um a book about ds and and several more projects and our friendship continued and when the attack transpired in benghazi the um both Fred and I um spoke on the phone and we kind of realized that DS would be one of the agencies or one of the entities that would be thrown under the bus in this in- in- incident because many inside the beltway simply didn't understand what DS did and they didn't understand the challenges of DS and they didn't understand the sacrifice and courage that these um young men and women um um performed day in day out around the world yeah so sam katz paint this picture of your standard DS agent who is serving as a regional security officer for in any one of our foreign posts, either one that is sort of uh, well-appointed like Paris or or London or one that's uh, in a more uh, rustic or dangerous setting, that, 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 that setting prior to 9-11 and then how the DS has to change its mission and really sort of almost change its uniform and its attire after 9-11, they went from guys in, in Ralph Lauren suits and wingtips, as you write, to people who are really wearing uh, BDUs on a regular basis. In the perfect world, and as we all know, the perfect world doesn't exist, um, security at an embassy is controlled by a State Department agent, a senior agent, a regional security officer, and he has the cooperation and full support of the host nation in protecting that facility. And that could be anywhere from Paris to Paraguay. Um, and, um, and and any country throughout the world where there is a host government, a private security company will be hired to do some of the um, rudimentary security around the perimeter. He'll have several agents that work for him. And inside the embassy to protect classified material, there'll be a contingent of marine security guards. That's in the perfect world, and that's both in the um, pre-9-11 world and the post-9-11 global war on terror. The global war on terror really taxed the resources of the diplomatic security service as well as other elements of the U.S. government that operated overseas because Afghanistan and Iraq warranted such massive manpower. And that stretched DS quite thinly. And people started doing hardship tours um, not once every few years, but once every couple of years. And it was incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging, and it changed the face of what these guys did. One of the agents that we interviewed for the book, um, a retired agent, you know, said that, um, you know, we're not SEALs. We're not commandos. You know, we can fight like them, and we can operate alongside them. But we're managers. We're security managers. We're special agents. We invest In the United States, they investigate um, passport and visa fraud. They do dignitary protection. So being these frontline combatants is not really their... Um, the hat that they wear. Unfortunately, in the new world that we live in, especially in the post-evolution of the Arab Spring, there are no front lines. Um, A capital in a country where we had very good relations with the local security services might one day have those security services disappear. The country might be hostile toward us. So the mission of safeguarding the diplomatic post and the diplomats hasn't changed, but the battlefield has. And this is something that often... Um, is, you know, in, in Washington, after the attack in Benghazi, it became very easy to point fingers and, and, and place blame. But we find ourselves in a world where expeditionary diplomacy isn't marching as fast as the events changing around it. And everybody's playing a game of catch-up. And in Benghazi, the game of catch-up caught up with everybody. Yeah, so let's, let's catch right up then to where the book Under Fire, the untold story of the attack in Benghazi by... Fred Burton and Sam Katz moves from sort of a history of how we guard our diplomats overseas to perhaps the most riveting second-by-second account of, of an engagement with hostiles since, I think, Mark Bowden's Black Hawk Down. And set up the scene, Sam, if you would, about why Chris Stevens was in Benghazi that week. There's so much confusion in terms of what people were fed one year ago, uh, September 11, 2012, about well, was he based full-time in Benghazi? 
was the, did we have an embassy in Benghazi? In fact, in your book, Under Fire, you really distinguish between what happened for special mission uh, uh, Benghazi and the special mission compound versus another piece of real estate we had in Benghazi called the Annex. Well, let's, um, let's, let me answer the, um, the, the beginning um, first as to why Ambassador Stevens was there. No one knows. Um, as the ambassador in a country, he is the personal representative of the United of the uh, he's the personal representative of the president of the United States in that country. In that in that setting, his word is the word of God. If he decides he's traveling to one city or another, um, his political officers and clearly not the DS agents who don't have a seat at the table will not tell him, "No, sir, you cannot go." He'll go where where he wants to go, and the agents will have to provide security. He was based out of the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli, and the special mission compound in Benghazi was an ad hoc, a temporary consulate, a place where he could work out of, a place where he could he could um, dine and where he could sleep while he was in the city. The city was dangerous. Eastern Libya was had, had become um, an epicenter of arms trafficking and fundamentalist militias who um, were really the um, forming this new and very lethal al-Qaeda and jihadist movement um, in the Maghreb, in, in North Africa. But we have to set a backdrop as well as to why Libya was significant and why it was dangerous. In June 2012, the U.S. assassinates the number two in al-Qaeda, who is Libyan. Al-Qaeda swears revenge. A few days after that, the British ambassador is almost killed in an ambush. The British pull out. Other attacks transpire against the International Red Cross and even in the International Red Crescent. Um, these organizations pull out. But the U.S. remained behind for whatever strategic purposes um, it was decided that needed to be maintained in-country. And in the book, we, we interview a retired agent who, when he was a young rookie, was sent on a temporary duty to Beirut, Lebanon, just as these five young agents were sent for temporary duty to Benghazi. And there in Lebanon in the Civil War, when the embassy was under sniper fire and mortar attack, he sent a cable back to Washington saying, this is dangerous. We're going to get our people killed. We have to pull out. And he received a response from the State Department that said, we have to stay put. We are in Lebanon for a higher purpose. And often that higher purpose isn't understood. But two days after or a few days after he received that cable, the U.S. ambassador and the chief political officer at the embassy were kidnapped by Palestinian terrorists and brutally murdered. So there are risks involved in diplomacy. There are risks, risks involved in being situated in places where you really have no friendly forces to come pull you out of the fire. In law enforcement, it's often said that if a cop is, is in need of assistance, backup could be a block away or a mile away. Well, if you're in an isolated post somewhere in Africa and your two DS agents will find themselves amid a civil war or chaos, backup could be an aircraft carrier 6,000 miles away. You have to rely on your wits, you have to rely on your courage, and you have to pray that you can hold out long enough um, until the good guys come. And so then let's switch actually to the uh, late night, I believe it's 1030 of September 11th, 2012. It's, um, uh, I want to hear some of the chatter or comments that we heard back in the United States in response to uh, both what was happening in Cairo and also in Benghazi. Let's begin with Governor Mitt Romney, his reaction to reports as, the, as our special mission compound was under, under attack. The uh, embassy in, in Cairo put out a statement after their grounds had been breached. Protesters were inside the grounds. They reiterated that statement after the breach. I think it's a, uh, a terrible course to, for America to, um, to stand uh, in apology for our values. That instead, when uh, our grounds are being attacked and being breached, that the first response of the United States must be outrage at the uh, a breach of the sovereignty of our nation. And apology for America's values is never the right course. Uh, Sam Katz, we will hear from uh, President Obama in a second. That was Governor Romney. But at that very moment, 10.30, 11 o'clock, September 11th, Benghazi time, what's happening to Ambassador Stevens and his DS protective detail? Um, the backdrop of the, um, of the protests that transpired on, on the morning of September 11th 
are imperative um, to understand and put it all in context. And I didn't answer your your other question about the CIA annex, which is also important. Yeah. Because part and parcel of expeditionary diplomacy is the fact that sometimes the the intelligence piece dictates the show. And the the nature of the um, CIA annex in Benghazi remains classified. Um, what they did and what their mission was remains um, up to um, speculation. But there was a security detail there. You know enough that, that the special mission compound and the annex are about what distance away from each other? Do you have that? Do you have about, that? A mi- about a mile and a half. Okay. And it was in a very um, um, upscale neighborhood in um in Benghazi. So you, you have these, these elements there of um, diplomacy and intelligence working side by side. That morning of September 11th, um, perhaps orchestrated um, by fundamentalist elements, word of this, um, this ridiculous YouTube video becomes viral. Protests emanate throughout the, um, the Islamic and Arab world. In Cairo, there was a large-scale protest. Um, it was later learned that one of the organizers of the protest was the brother of Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri. So there is an al-Qaeda connection. And in, in terms of security, especially security for an embassy, if there is a protest of 25 or 50,000 people who are storming an embassy and the local police force is unwilling or incapable of stopping it, there's nothing in the world that's going to prevent them from overtaking the embassy. So there were very real concerns in Cairo, as well as in Tunis and in Rabat, Morocco, that embassies throughout the region were being attacked. And people believed in Washington, and rightly so because that was what was transpiring, that these events were dictated by anger over the film. On the night of September 11th, um, Ambassador Stevens had a busy itinerary. He retired to the villa um, for well-deserved rest. And all of a sudden, out of the quiet, um, there's gunfire. Terrorists breach the uh, compound, and they quickly overtake the facility by just passing through the um, local guard force that had been hired, as well as a few militiamen who had um, been assigned to the facility to, to augment security. These are the Blue Mountain Libya guys that, that have uh, handcuffs and a taser. Were the uh, unarmed um, private security, and there was the f- the 17 February militia that was out there to um, um, augment security um, contractually with um, with the State Department. So now the agents have to um, first safeguard the ambassador and Sean Smith, who was his communications and, officer. And they've basically uh, gone into rest mode for the night. They've taken off their weapons. They've they're basically in their pajamas, right? Pajamas might be a stretch, but um, we refer to it in the book as what, what the agents call smoking and joking, um, kicking off um, you know, after a long day's work, just relaxing to try and focus um, and try and regain a bit of their humanity. Um, you know, taking Ambassador Stevens to and from his meetings throughout the city is an exhausting entity for 50 agents, let alone five. So these guys, um, you know, these guys were really working hard. So now the attack transpires, and one agent assigned to both Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith has to bring them to a safe haven, an impromptu setup inside the villa where, in case of attack, they can hold out uh, until help arrives. And the terrorists are armed with AK-47s and RPGs, and they attempt to locate the ambassador, and they attempt to overtake the facility, but the agents are hunkered down. So the terrorists resort to um, what in the past has been very effective against um, taking out embassies. They set the place on fire. And in the smoke and the fire, ultimately and tragically, um, Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith um, would perish. Let's hear uh, that same day the remarks of President Obama talking about what was going on in both uh, Cairo and Benghazi. Yesterday, four of these extraordinary Americans were killed in an attack on our diplomatic post in Benghazi. Among those killed was our ambassador, Chris Stevens, as well as Foreign Service Officer Sean Smith. Uh, We are still notifying the families of the others who were killed. Sam Katz, what what did the State Department, uh, the DSS, the DSCC, uh, FBI, White House, CIA, what were they really knowing of what was happening at the moment back in Washington, and what were the alternatives for immediate response in terms of trying to get Stevens and Smith out of their safe haven into safety? The moment the first round was fired, the agents inside the special mission compound knew that they were under attack, that they were under fire. 
And they notified, um, according to the standard operating procedure, they notified the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli, the, the regional security officer, um, Eric Nordstrom, as well as they notified the, the CIA annex because there had been an, an agreement and an arrangement in place, whereas the annex force, the, the CIA contractors from the GRS force, and a local militia would respond, and this constituted what was known as the QRF, or Quick Reaction Force. The U.S. Embassy in Tripoli notified, it, notified the State Department um, Command Center as well as the DS Operations Center, and slowly um, word got up to the higher-ups. I think there is a bit of misconception about how Washington works, and my co-author, Fred Burton, um, who was an agent for many years, um, you know, can speak to this um, with great personal insight. The the wheels of bureaucracy move slowly sometimes, and when it gets to the top level, these are not the individuals that we want making tactical decisions. These are not the individuals that can snap their fingers and have a rescue force in place in in a couple of hours. Uh, there's um, you know distance and logistics sometimes get in the way, and there's an analogy that that I hope makes sense. But the baseball announcer, Tim McCarver, when he covers a game and there's a runner on base, he always says that speed slows down the game. A terrorist incident slows down the reaction possibilities because now you have a real incident. Now you have to gather the forces that have been selected to deal with that incident. You have to provide them with intelligence, accurate intelligence, so that they're not walking into a trap. They're not walking into an ambush. You have to provide them with the support, air cover, naval assets, all the pieces of the puzzle that must go into place even before you get host nation permission to deploy to that nation. So immediacy um, in, 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 in film and TV is in the 90 minutes of, of, a, of a movie or 60 minutes of a TV episode. But in reality, um, eight, a response from the U.S. or even from a base nearby can be 8, 12 hours away. And by that time, in reality, the um, the attack had already transpired. And I think one of the one of the stories that isn't being told, and one of the true stories, um, one of the stories that isn't being told in Washington, or certainly wasn't told in the um, weeks and even today um, by the powers that be, is the fact that there was a response. There was um, a CIA contingent of contractors of GRS folks um, at the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli, as well as a few JSOC operators. And when the word of the attack happened, these men didn't, um, you know, didn't you know, sh um, shirk their responsibilities. They suited up, they grabbed their gear, and they volunteered to go and rescue their, um, their comrades. And they went immediately to, um, to coordinate a plan that brought them to Benghazi to help augment security and to, um, and to see whatever they could do to assist their, uh, their fellow um, contractors and fellow agents and diplomats and pull them out of harm's way. And in fact, one of those um, volunteers was Glenn Doherty, who was killed in the um, subsequent mortar attack on the CIA annex. But sometimes in country, you don't have any resources to help you, and especially a country where there was no host nation um, government to speak of and no reliable militia. Sam Katz, in terms of the frustrations and challenges of figuring out a response and figuring out what was going on in Benghazi, if you're Greg Hicks in Tripoli, let's hear a little bit of Greg's testimony uh, before Congress earlier this summer and love to get your reaction. The RSO John Martinek ran into my villa yelling, Greg, Greg, the consulate's under attack. And I stood up and reached for my phone because I had an inkling or thought that perhaps the ambassador had tried to call me to relay the same message. And I found two missed calls on the phone, one from the ambassador's phone, one from a phone number I didn't recognize. And I punched the phone number I didn't recognize, and I got the ambassador on the other end. And he said, Greg, we're under attack. So, Sam, you, you only mention Greg, I think, once or twice in the book, uh, but he's certainly a, a font of information for Congress. What was going on in Tripoli and, and Greg's efforts to mobilize a response? Well, um, as Greg um, mentions in, in the clip that you played, um, he, he was informed of the attack by the RSO John Martinek. Um, Eric Nordstrom, I, I had mentioned earlier, he was the previous RSO. And the embassy in Tripoli like any embassy when they respond to attack that involves American official Americans in country, they reacted as best that they could. First of all, there's confusion. 
Um, where is he? What's his condition? Um, what are the condition of the, of the agents? Um, how many bad guys are there? There is something that we mention in the book called the fog of terror. Um, and unless you're, you're there reporting or there, there are all the perfect emplacements um, positions so that you can have real-time assessments, it's very difficult to paint an accurate picture. And they were, playing, they, were, they were catching up to try and follow events as best they could. The agents were providing information, but this too was sketchy. You know, what was the, plan, what was the reaction plan? There was recently um, the New York Times revealed that there was an internal effort um, by some retired State Department agents to provide suggestions as to how um, Benghazi's could be prevented in the future. And one of the um, one of the suggestions was that there be emergency action plans in place um, for these critical threat posts that um, have all these um, what ifs um, as part of the um, standard operating procedures. And one of the other suggestions was that all the, all these critical threat posts maintain um, threat analysts who can can analyze correctly and professionally the day to day threats and make determinations and determinations that will stick. But the, um, the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli responded um, with the limited resources at its disposal. Again, the facility is new. The um, host nation is fledgling. Um, it's post-revolutionary. Th- this is not coordinating a response in a London or a Paris. This is coordinating a response in, in an abyss of sorts. And um, the, the attack was, was tragic, but the response was as immediate as it could be, and in, 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 in absolute terms, it was heroic. Heroic indeed. Let's hear a little bit of Secretary of State, then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, as the bodies of Ambassador Stevens, Mr. Smith, and uh, the those that were in defense of the Special Mission Compound were repatriated to Dover Air Force Base. Today, we bring home four Americans who gave their lives for our country and our values. To the families of our fallen colleagues, I offer our most heartfelt condolences and deepest gratitude. Sam, you've talked about some of the lessons that you think were learned uh, by what happened about a year ago, September 11th, 2012, in Benghazi, Libya. As you were sort of filing away, going back to 1995, your interest in writing about the DS. Uh, what for you personally has been the uh, journey of exploration and understanding in, that, in the year since this happened and following the, uh, for instance, the documents that were revealed to show about how White House talking points were created that evening, about 70 pages of emails going back and forth to say, just the simplest thing about what happened. And you, more than anyone else in, in the country, I think now have a, the fullest understanding of of those hours uh, on September 11, 2012. What's it been like for you to be custody of all that information? Well, it's. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm in custody of the information. Um, Fred and I um, were able to piece together um, through our knowledge and through um, contacts um, as best as we could the story from the perspective of the world in which the diplomatic security service lives um, the the agency is often misunderstood and as a result it's misrepresented and in cases like Benghazi when agents who were quite heroic um, you know one of the agents is still recuperating from his wounds um, from um, that night of terror um, Morale sinks to a low, um, but the the agents, um, you know, they persevere and they they carry on. The um, they are incredibly resilient in terms of their mission. Um, their their training is something that they dedicate with with great um, passion and great professionalism. Um, I I, th- I think that um, people don't understand the sacrifice that many of these um, men and women make over the course of careers um, serving very far from home in many posts where they can't bring their um, their families um, under great danger and often dealing for diplomats that don't appreciate or even dislike the work that they do. Um, diplomacy and security um, do not work hand in hand. Um, diplomats don't like living from within the walls of bunkers and fortresses. And the, the, 
the Foreign Service and the security agents sometimes and sometimes frequently clash openly over the protocols and provisions and the need to safeguard classified information. And it's a thankless job in many cases, and it's a job that um, that creates some um, enormous stress, um, stress on families, stress on marriages, and sometimes personal stress from um, from issues such as um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and I think that um, the takeaway from what happened in Benghazi and, um, and perhaps um, future Benghazis, especially as we inch toward um, military intervention in Syria, where um, our, our enemies, um, our, our the forces on the opposite end of the, um, of the lines are going to be the um, Iranian Revolutionary Guard and Hezbollah, two entities that have a very long and bloody track record of attacking U.S. diplomats and diplomatic posts. I think the takeaway is that you know, it is imperative that our, our presence in the world be protected, that, that we understand that our presence in the world takes with it great risk, and that the men and women who serve in places like Benghazi be equipped with all the resources from equipment to support and political backing to do their job and do their job professionally. A story extraordinarily well told. Samuel, L. Samuel M. Katz, along with Fred Burton, the authors of Under Fire, the untold story of the attack in Benghazi. Sam Katz, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us on Polyoptics. Uh, thank you so, so much for having me. After the break, Doug Mills, photographer of the New York Times, on assignment all this week on Capitol Hill, following Secretary of State Kerry and Secretary of Defense Hagel as they try and sell the administration's plan for military intervention in Syria. This is the only channel that takes you inside Washington, D.C. My message is simple. It's just not realistic. We're serious about growing our economy. Our economy. It's clear the president's is growing again. Not helping the economy. The economy. Bureaucracy. Monetary policy. Jobs. We'll be able to reduce our deficit. Fighting over power. It's starting to make a lot more sense. This is POTUS. How we communicate is changing, and POTUS is there. And I understand you want to start the conversation off with a tweet of yourself. I am going to make history here uh, as the first president to live tweet. POTUS is now. POTUS is now. Sirius XM 124. As I promised at the top of the program, Doug Mills, my old friend, one of the great photographers covering Washington, D.C., reporting for the New York Times, joins us uh, on a, a rare day in which he is here and the president is not. Doug, why are you not with President Obama in Sweden as he moves on to Russia? Well, one of my colleagues, Steve Crowley, is on the trip uh, this time, and uh, obviously with everything going on in Washington, it's good to be back here to cover this uh, crisis that's going on about Syria and uh getting uh, the Senate and the House to okay and agree this uh, for the president. I want to move back on some of the stuff that you've covered throughout the summer and get a sense of how the summer's gone for you, and then also look forward to the fall and winter. But first, uh, I want to hear how this week began in the Rose Garden with President Obama talking about uh, the role that Secretary of State would uh, Kerry would have to play on the Hill as the president headed off to Sweden. I long believed that our power is rooted not just in our military might, but in our example, as a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that's why I've made a second decision. I will seek authorization for the use of force from the American people's representatives in Congress. So, Doug Mills, uh, Obama gives the order to Secretary of State Kerry to head up to the Hill, and you follow. What do you see through the lens this week? Uh, I see a lot of tension, actually. I was surprised. Uh, I thought it was going to go uh, a little smoother than it did the first day in the Senate. Um, there were some pushback, obviously, from some senators who were very skeptical of what's going on. Uh, Senator Kerry and uh, Defense Secretary Hagel um, had their hands full, and clearly you could tell they were. it was all about business. From the moment they walked in the room, the seriousness of which they greeted the senators, I know Senator Kerry gave uh, Senator McCain a, uh, you know, a nice little gentle hug as they came in, and uh, they certainly refer, refer to each other as John and John, and so it's, uh, it's interesting to see that little dynamic. But um, it, it played out uh, pretty much like I think everybody thought it was going to, but um, the, uh, the tension was definitely in the, in the room, and there's a lot of misinformation that's out there, and I think uh, Senator Kerry... Uh, and Defense Secretary, uh, or excuse me, Secretary Kerry and Defense Secretary Hagel were trying to uh, 
lay out all the facts as they know them and certainly not get into uh, any any uh, sort of war that we don't need to be involved in. Now, Doug, you've covered Senator Kerry as a U.S. senator, as a presidential candidate, and now as a secretary of state. You know, when when Secretary Kerry designate went up for his confirmation hearings, it was all very perfunctory and and collegial. And I was struck watching the video of the the tones exchanged between Kerry himself, a longtime senator, and some of the senators on the Foreign Relations Committee with less experience in the body. What was it like you in the well, sort of hearing the back and forth of a dialogue that you don't typically hear in that room? Yeah, I would agree. Um, Secretary Kerry, a number of times, kept saying the three gentlemen that are sitting at this table have all been involved in the have all been to war. We know what it's like. We don't want to go there and, and it's absolutely necessary. And when obviously there are a lot of senators who are on that foreign relations committee who have not served uh, in the military, and I think that that went down. He probably must have said that a half a dozen times. And um, when uh, Senator Paul obviously started uh, striking that tone with him, too, again, he struck back with it and became pretty feisty. Um, that was, those were, I mean, even with Senator McCain, they became a little, you know, testy as far as, again, calling him John and uh, saying, John, you know that, you know, we need to know all the facts on this and we have to be 100% sure. And I think, you know, Secretary Kerry kept coming back with, a lot of the the buzzwords that the uh, the foreign relations committee wanted to hear about no boots on the ground. It's going to be a limited strike. We're going to do this, and you know it'll be a 60-day uh, period, and um, nothing will be done without the uh, the authorization of Congress. We want your backing. We need it, and uh, the American people want it. Let's hear a little bit from the hearings on the Hill this week. Now, some will undoubtedly and understandably ask about the unintended consequences of action. Will this drag you in inadvertently? And they fear that a retaliation could lead to a larger conflict. Let me say again, unequivocally, bluntly, if Assad is arrogant enough and foolish enough to retaliate to the consequences of his own criminal activity, the United States and our allies have ample ways to make him regret that decision without going to war. Doug Mills, New York Times, let's talk about you in the well and two of the sort of signature angles that that I look for when I see a Doug Mills shot. The first is when you don't follow the pack, uh, you are shooting with a very wide lens, maybe a sort of higher angle, showing Secretary Kerry and the photographers right up on his table. How are you making that shot? What are Are you being followed by others or is that your own particular perch? Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's one of my, I guess, what some of the, my colleagues, uh, other news photographers said, a signature Mills picture where I take a, uh, a monopod and I extend it, which is a single, single long pole that uh, goes up as far as 12 feet, and I put my camera on the top of that, and then I point it down towards the subject, and I have a wireless remote, a pocket wizard, it's called, and I'm able to fire the camera from there from way above everybody. Um, it's been done by other photographers in the past. Um, since I've done it, I've, I think the first time I ever did it was in the uh, was in the Roosevelt Room, and uh, then it went on to the Cabinet Room, and then I've tried it in the Oval Office, and uh, it again works well on Capitol Hill. It really gives you a sense of the closeness of the photographers and the witnesses to the witnesses, and also the crowds behind them. The, you know, the the people who were in the in the audience. Who uh, yesterday even we had a few protesters who uh, got pretty close to uh, Secretary Kerry, and um, so it really gives you a, a, a bit of a over bird's-eye view. Is, is, uh, is that filed with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, that approach? No, but uh, it's funny. One of my colleagues uh, actually did it the other day in the, ca- in the cabinet room with, uh, when President Obama met with members of Congress, and uh, one of them sent me a text and said, hey, uh, somebody's uh, stealing your copyright. So it's, it's ironic that you would ask, yes. But he used it, and uh, even sent me a text and said, uh, hey, I'm following your lead on this, so you weren't here, so I'm doing it. Let's talk about the other angle that you had, the one that showed up in the Thursday edition of the New York Times. There's Secretary Kerry holding his hands up in sort of a prayerful position, and there's some other hands in the frame. How did you see this and and make that picture? Yeah, I I tried to get as low as I could because uh, the the protesters in the back 
um, had painted their hands red as to indicate blood, and they were wearing shirts that said U.S. out of Syria, obviously protesting any um, action that the U.S. military would take. And they held their hands up um, sometimes for a long time and other times, and it was just a matter of trying. And I knew that if, if I could get Secretary Kerry doing any sort of hand gestures like that, it would really try and duplicate what, what was going on behind him. And he obviously had no idea that these hands were up behind him. He had he probably was there three or four hours and never knew that uh, the protesters were back there with their hands up. He obviously saw them and was confronted by them when he walked in the room, but uh, they basically were holding up signs at that point. So it's something he never saw, but obviously I had my eye on it, and I probably waited a good 30 minutes for him actually to be lucky enough for him to gesture much like what was going on in the background. And because the protesters were being peaceful, uh, silent, I suppose, Doug, they were allowed to stay and not removed from the room? That's correct, yes. Um, much like in the Senate, if, you, uh, the, if the chairman bangs a gavel, if someone is speaking over or above the, uh, the witness, they are escorted out of the room. Surprisingly, when, when Secretary Kerry arrived in the room, there, were, there was one protester who walked very close to the, to the back of him and started yelling, don't go into, we don't want another war stay out of Syria, he actually turned towards us and towards the Capitol Hill police and said, can we get some security in here? So then the security pushed this gentleman back to his seat. He stayed back there, and for the rest of the hearing, they were silent. What was it like, Doug, generally, taking a step back from your usual um, beat at the White House to, to go back to Capitol Hill and do the job that so many of your colleagues do every day covering hearings that don't quite have as much drama as the ones that uh, Sen- Secretary Hagel and Secretary Kerry were involved with? Yeah, it's, it's great to go to the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue and see, you know, obviously if you're at the White House a lot, you get to hear the president talk about members of Congress and what happens on the Hill and how dysfunctional it is and what's going on up there. And then to go back up there and to really be in the mix as far as a, a, a really you know, high-profile assignment like that where there's a hearing that everybody's talking about and uh, the drama can unfold at any moment, and, and it's so unscripted. A lot of things at the White House are very scripted. A lot of stuff on the Hill is unscripted. You, because there are so many members and so many senators, you really never know what's going to happen. So to be thrown into an event like this knowing that there is uh, the possibility of uh, some real news breaking out uh, is, uh, is fascinating, it's exciting, and it's, uh, they're long days, but it's worth it. Doug Mills, talking about a big assignment earlier this week or last week, uh, New York Times sent you to the mall, Lincoln Memorial, covering the event marking the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. There's a frame that you made and put out uh, that shows President Obama uh, kneeling down to kiss, uh, to greet Yolanda Renee King, granddaughter of, of Dr. King. And in the background, I also see my old boss, uh, Bill Clinton, and Jimmy Carter behind that. What was it like to be assigned to cover that event with the history on your shoulders, and how did you tackle it? Yeah, it was, again, another historical event that uh, came to Washington. And, you know, it brought on a lot of history because of obviously having the first African-American president um, on the 50th anniversary there with the crowds that he had. It was a huge, huge crowd. And um, the moment that you're talking about was something that happened at the very end, you know, through the entire event. We're looking for moments that will represent to our readers what exactly happened there, how to, how to, you know, put an overall picture into one frame. And um, when President Obama went af- afterwards behind the podium, walked over and started meeting some of the King family, um, we saw the granddaughter sitting there. At the time, I didn't know that that was his only granddaughter. And uh, President Obama really knelt down and got on her level and was talking to her. She was very shy, but they had a little conversation there. And I was lucky enough, again, to have your boss in the background, Bill Clinton, um, and uh, Jimmy Carter was back there also. So it really made, you know, it was a nice moment when it happened, when I saw it through the frame. um, I thought this might wrap up. This may be a telling picture that will, you know, explain to everybody what actually happened there and the fact that there's a first African-American president who's there and speaking to someone, a granddaughter that may be, you know, of, Martin Luther King Jr. So I thought it would be somewhat of a historical picture after the fact. Um, and again, people have have said that. So it was uh, it was a 
great day to be down there, um, and it was uh, great to be a part of it. And I'm so I was thrilled that the New York Times used it on the front page, and uh, it was great. One of the people who applauded that picture, Doug Mills, was uh, Pete Souza, official White House photographer. He tweets out, uh, nice shot, nice photo by Doug Mills. And, you know, I've had Charlie Darapak on this program before. I've had you on this program before. What's the current state of play between news photographers trying to capture news pictures and the official photographer trying to do his job and, and, and your ability to get genuine moments like this on a more regular basis? Yeah, it's, it's they unfortunately become more and more rare for us um, to get those nice moments. Uh, we had a couple of nice moments in the last trip in Africa, um, and it was nice of Pete Souza, the White House photographer, to tweet that out and give me a little shout-out about it because he liked the moment too. Um, we obviously were trying. We also thought that we could wrap up that, that event with one iconic moment, having the president standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, which is somewhere that Pete Souza, because he has the access that he does, uh, was able to go behind the president, shoot the president, and the uh, former president waving to the large crowd. Again, that was a very iconic moment, too. I wish we had been able to go up there. We asked, as you know, as, a, as an ace advanced man that you were, um, you would have you would have been able to get us up there. Unfortunately, we did not get up there for that picture. We really wanted to get up there, and it's tough. It's uh, we are we are we are fighting a a, uh, a long battle um, constantly for yeah. access, and um, it continues with every administration. It's become tighter and tighter, and obviously with Twitter and you know and Instagram and Facebook and everything else that the White House has at their disposal. Um, a lot of those moments are seen now by the White House photographer and not by us. But you end up seeing them through the White House um, photo office, and they are able to tweet them out and put them out on Flickr and Instagram and everywhere else. And unfortunately, we see some of those moments, and we're obviously upset that we can't be there. So it is. It's, it's tough. I mean, obviously, the White House is using that, uh, the digital media to, uh, to the best of their ability, and they're, they're obviously doing a great job with it, well, uh, much, much to our chagrin. It's one of the great unwritten stories so far about how White Houses control image more and more through that official photographer, and I, I continue to observe it, and at some point, you know, it needs that story needs to kind of be fully fleshed out. Um, I could not agree more. Could not agree more with that. It is. It's a, it's a delicate issue on both sides. We constantly push for the access, and if they can control the image, they'll do everything they can to do it. So let's move uh, move back a little bit in the summer. I want to hear how things went, uh, particularly with uh, your Africa trip. Um, it was not a trip that I got to do with President Clinton, so I haven't been to some of the sites that President Obama went to with you. What are some of your recollections, and how did you approach the assignment? It was a fascinating trip. Uh, again, uh, I think going into it, the um, the, the story about, President Obama going to Africa was a big story, and then all of a sudden, a week beforehand, Nelson Mandela becomes ill. Looks very, you know, it looks like very serious, like he's uh, not not going to make it through the trip. I mean, there were grave reports about how he was doing, and obviously that overshadowed the beginning of our trip. Um, there was even talk if uh, he became iller that we would come back to the United States, uh, the trip would be postponed or canceled. But um, luckily that didn't happen. Uh, we were hoping to see President Obama with Nelson Mandela. That, that ended up not happening, obviously, because of his health. Um, there were, when we went to Cape Town and Johannesburg, um, Senegal, I mean, the crowds were phenomenal. Um, in Senegal, the crowd was thousands and thousands of people, as you can imagine. Normally you'd think of, I, I can only envision the, the like inaugural in the United States where you have the streets completely lined. There, there were ten times that on the streets, and the motorcade became so narrow. The path for the motorcade, I should say, became so narrow with the crowds gathering on each side of the, the limo that the, the motorcade kept going faster and faster for fear that the crowd would overwhelm the, the motorcade. So there were thousands and thousands of people there, um, and it was just a, it was a remarkable trip. I mean, he, he went to some, went back to Nelson Mandela's jail cell. And he um, actually walked in there. The last time he had been there was his senator. This was the first time as sitting president he had been there. He took his family there, um, Sasha and Malia, 
uh, went there and the first lady, and they got the tour of the jail cell. And I think it was a real educational event for them. Um, but it was a it was a great trip. And uh, again, as you well know, having done all those foreign trips with the president, there's no sleep at all. You uh, hit the ground running, and the next thing you know, ten days later, you're back in the U.S. Anyone who wants to have a sense of Doug Mills' work on that trip during uh, Africa earlier this summer should go back and check his Twitter feed uh, at Doug Mills NYT from uh, June 26th to July 2nd. One of the last shots of the trip shows President Obama with President Bush in Tanzania, Doug. And I'm interested in what that image looked like to you through the lens. And then uh, from a broader perspective, you're on this trip and these pictures of yours are getting tweeted out. There's so many changes in the profession of news photography. What's it like, this most recent one, in which you kind of get instantaneous feedback from your work? Yeah, it, it's, it, it is a fascinating uh, dynamic that is thrown into our... I mean, as you well know, a uh, news photographer 10 years ago or 12 years ago had a film camera taking pictures, sending the, the, the film in, someone else processing, or we were processing the film in a bathroom on the road in a hotel. Now it's instantaneous. We have a digital camera, um, take the card out, put it in our laptop, and off it goes. And now, because it's in, there is Instagram and there is Twitter, uh, the feedback when you send out these pictures is, is, as you said, instantaneous. And some of it positive, some of it negative, some of it very hilarious. Um, when you tweet out a picture of, for instance, uh, President Obama and President Bush together, there are lots of uh, lines drawn, but drawn in the comments that I get. Uh, fascinating. I read them all, and I'm always fascinated to see what the American people and other people who are following me on Twitter um, feel about the pictures. And um, it is. It's changed. It's changed the way we we work completely. We think in three or four mediums now. I mean, at the New York Times, I'm concentrating on the website and the newspaper, and now on the side doing Twitter and Instagram, um, so it, it really fills up your day. At the end of the day, you can look back and you know, realize that you've filled a lot of mediums that weren't there 10 years ago. Often, Doug Mills, your days can be planned by the schedules that the White House puts out, that the press, radio, and television correspondence gallery puts out on the Hill, and sometimes you just don't know what you're gonna, uh, what the day has in store. One of those earlier this summer was July 16th, an uh, armed man was arrested across the street from the White House, and the Secret Service Uniform Division uh, responded. You're in the briefing room, I suppose. How do you get word that this is happening, and then how do you put, take off your sort of planful news photographer hat and go on and sort of rush to cover breaking news? Yeah, well, that was a, um, a really strange moment. Um, I was actually in the process of take, photo, making a portrait of someone out on the uh, out on the south or north lawn, excuse me, out on the north lawn, and um, I saw some police activity over in the park, not knowing what it was. And there were a couple other camera crews around doing, as you know, stand-ups doing their normal business outside on the northwest lawn. And um, I noticed a gathering of police, so I went back in, grabbed a longer lens came back out, and the next thing I know, I walked up, and there was a man sitting there surrounded by, by uh, members of the Secret Service and uh, later found out that this gentleman, I think, was pretty much on a mission to, uh, to be killed by police because he told the police that he uh, wanted to shoot the gun that he was carrying. And I think what happened was there's a guard shack now near Lafayette Park. This gentleman sat down in the park um, and was had a lunch pack and a backpack and looked like he was drinking some sort of alcohol with a, in, a, in a paper bag. Um, the officer recognized him through a window and the guard shack, watched him. He, this gentleman took off his shirt, exposed what was a handgun in his back, or tucked into the back of his pants, and the officer ran out of the guard shack and asked him, you know, told him to drop it, and he wouldn't drop it. So then they called in for backup. Uh, he wouldn't drop the gun. He wouldn't drop the gun. And with that, within... I tell you, Josh, within a minute, there were probably 30 police officers, Secret Service police officers, bicycles, cars, running across the park from the Northwest uh, Gate office tr and trying to get on this guy. And luckily they talked him out of it because I think what one of them said was, you know, we, we explained to him, if you don't drop it, you're going to be dead. And uh, he ended up dropping the gun. And I happened to be the only one out there at the time um, when they took him away. So... Uh, 
you know, it's just one of those things being in the right place at the right time. You never know, Doug Mills, when you get assigned to cover a day at the White House. You think it's just going to be a couple photo ops in the Oval Office, and it turns out to be a ruckus in Lafayette Park. Exactly right. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had my old friend Jen Palmieri on the show talking, sort of breaking down stop by stop the president's visit out west to Arizona and then the Jay Leno show in Burbank mm, and then yeah. uh, Camp Pendleton. Uh, before he went on his vacation. One very interesting shot, of course, is when he lands in Phoenix, is he going to be greeted by the governor, Jan right. Brewer? And last time that he did this, he gets sort of a, a finger in the eye and a, and a lecture by Governor Brewer. Are you in the pool thinking this could be a big moment? Yes, actually, I, we we talked about it um, about five minutes out before landing because we did not, the White House had not given out yet um, who were the greeters, who was going to greet uh, President Obama. So we really didn't know if the governor was going to be there, and uh, we joked uh, it should be interesting if she is. And sure enough, uh, five minutes out, we get an email from the uh, White House staff saying, you know, the governor will be there as one of the greeters. So yeah, we thought I was on that trip before when she did shake his her finger at him, um, and we all thought that it was going to be maybe a repeat of that, or there would be some other issue because you never know. And um, luckily this time for, for both of them, she was very cordial and all smiles and as if nothing had ever happened, like they were old buddies. So, uh, it was it, yeah, it was definitely an interesting trip. And then going to Jay Leno and being on the Jay Leno show that night, the uh, president uh, let, got to let his hair down a little bit and ended up becoming more of a news conference than anything else. Uh, Jay Leno, you know, you would have thought he was a White House correspondent because uh, he answered questions that every White House reporter had been wanting to ask the president for the last month, and um, and I was in the pool that day, and we were in the in the in the green room, and uh, the reporters were you know marvelled at at the job that Jay Leno did with the president that night. Uh, that was a, an amazing uh, thirty minutes or so. Palmieri said basically, we have to plan for that like we do a news conference because you don't know what Jay is going to ask, and he's probably going to ask the questions that are most on people's minds. He did. He hey, did. Doug, sometimes, occasionally, rarely, uh, the New York Times uh, lets you do stuff that isn't quite uh, happening inside the Beltway. I'm looking at this photo of uh, the wild ponies from oh. swimming from Assateague Island into Chinoteague Island in Virginia. Gorgeous shot of of the wild Thank horses. What, when do you when do you get when does the Times release you to do uh, shots like this? You know, it was, it's obviously uh, not really dog days of the summer where not a lot was going on, but uh, the White House schedule was a little down. We have an intern, uh, a New York Times intern, uh, who helps us out in Washington, and we try and give them as much freedom as we can. Um, and I asked him to cover the White House for a couple of days, and I pitched the idea to New York saying, hey, I read about this, you know, this pony run that happens every year. It's an annual event. I don't think we've covered it before. Um, would it be okay if I go down to uh, Aztec Island and take a look at it? And uh, within about three or four hours, I got an email back said, go for it. So it was a great release to get out of Washington and go down and see uh, the ponies run, make their, make their you know, long swim through the water from the wild and into the tamed uh, banks of the um, Chincoteague. So it was, uh, it's a unique event. It's something that I think uh, people do annually from all over the country. There were people there from as far west as California who do it every year, and they come and watch, and they uh, enjoy it. And it's become a tradition within the families who, who live in those areas. that the, it's, it's, you know, it's like Fourth of July to them. They do it every year. They celebrate it. They watch the ponies go across. There are thousands of people out in the water in their boats watching. So, yeah, it was a fascinating event to, to watch these wild ponies be herded up on one side on a different island and then swim 15 minutes across the water and onto the land, and uh, then they get a rest, and then they're auctioned off for, for the uh, local fire department as part of their fundraising. Amazing. Yeah. Well, Doug, uh, this weekend uh, begins the, the next NFL football season. I know that instead of covering the sidelines, you'll be covering a much more important sporting event in Rhode Island. But I want to hear from last year the uh, the downfall of Robert Griffin III and get your thoughts on how the NFL season might be covered this year by the photographers on the sideline. Empty backfield. Bad oh, snap. Robert can't get it. It's loose, and Seattle's going to fall on it at the Redskins' five-yard line. He, he had no legs. Seattle recovers it. It's a low snap. Robert could not get up, and he is still down. 
His leg just gave away on him. So, Doug, uh, will they let you out and do, let you do some sports this fall? Oh, yes, yes. I'm looking forward to some uh, more NFL, and obviously if I can get uh, a few games with RG3, um, he's a phenomenal player. He's obviously taken this city by storm. He's talked about by everybody, um, and he's a great, great uh, quarterback to photograph. He's uh, so unpredictable and uh, fascinating to watch, you know, and, and my, the first game I covered with uh, RG3, I could not believe the speed. You know, he ran faster than uh, most of the running backs, obviously, and he was running as fast as the wide receivers and the punt returners. So when he got around the corner, um, you had to keep your lens on him. And a couple times I, you know, followed him, all, not thinking that he was going to go any further than another five yards or ten yards and end up getting nothing but the back of him as he went into the end zone. So, uh, yeah, I definitely hope to get uh, out and get some more NFL games. The last NFL game I shot was the Super Bowl. Uh, obviously, the Ravens win. It was a great game. Uh, we tried out a lot of new technology, as, um, as photographers always do. And I'm uh, now actually, believe it or not, transmitting directly from my camera, uh, not having to take the disc out uh, of the camera at all and putting it in a laptop. Uh, worked on a couple devices to, to be able to take pictures from my camera and send them directly to the New York Times and a backpack with a bunch of technology and it was allowed me to send a picture from the sidelines at the uh, Super Bowl to the New York office, uh, left my camera in about 10 seconds and was in the New York Times uh, digital darkroom three minutes later. So there were pictures coming in um, to the New York Times that uh, reporters had not finished blogging about the play yet. So Technology is driving us uh, more and more every day, and uh, I'm fascinated by it. And I love I love being a part of it. I'll expect to see you uh, also, Doug, uh, or at least your work from the uh, Winter Olympics coming up in early next year in Sochi, Russia. Should be fascinating on so many accounts, given the political drama that's unfolding around it, but also the technology that will enable you to cover it as never before as a photographer. What are the sports that we really you'll really love to line up for to watch? Well, I, um, much like the most Winter Olympics, I end up in the mountains because uh, I'm not a great skier, but I'm a decent skier, so I end up uh, covering a lot of the mountain races, the downhill, um, slalom, super G, uh, some of the uh, ski jumping. Um, I'll do most bobsled. Everything that happens in the mountains, I'll be up there. And, yes, the technology will, uh, will drive a lot of it. Um, it's probably the most grueling work I do every four years. I mean, the, the Summer Olympics are brutal also as far as your work schedule. You, you know, usually get up at 5.30 or 6, you leave, and you're wherever you're going by 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning, and you usually don't get back till midnight or 1 a.m. Um, becomes like Groundhog Day. The, the Winter Olympics are brutal because of all the gear that you carry. Not only are you carrying, you know, your cameras and everything else, laptops and everything else, but now you're carrying ski boots, skis, jackets, everything to keep warm, uh, rations, you know, whether it's water or food to keep hydrated and fed on the mountain when you're standing up on the side of a mountain for eight to ten hours a day. Um, it's a brutal, brutal assignment. It's fascinating. It's exciting. Um, you end up taking this chairlift up uh, to as far as it'll go and then putting on something called crampons, these ice shoes, and uh, walking up as far as you can up the side of the mountain to get uh, – to, to an advantage point, you know, I'll, I'll ski the, 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 the actual course and try and scope out spots to shoot from. And, again, when I say ski the course, I don't mean like what you're watching on television. Uh, I, if I can, you know, snowplow my way down the side or shimmy my way down one of the sides, uh, that's the way I go because the slopes, uh, unlike any other sport, um, what you see on TV doesn't do it justice because the, the slopes at the Winter Olympics are like ice. They pump in their machines that come down and pump little holes in the side of the, the uh, course and uh, fill it up with water. It freezes. It's like skis on ice when they come down there. And it, there's very little snow on these courses. It's mostly ice, and you don't realize it until you try and ski it. And uh, you see people, other photographers fall. You see people who are professional skiers fall on it just when they're just trying to um, to to navigate their way down the side of the mountain. So it's a, it's a challenging event, and, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the only issue will be the weather this time. Sochi, uh, like Vancouver, warm climate, but they're saying that Sochi um, could be even warmer. 
And uh, we had a New York Times uh, reporter who was in Sochi last winter and watched them uh, making snow and actually taking the snow off the mountain by dump trucks and taking it to an area and, and loading it on the side of this hill and then covering it with tarps. So they have snow that's been you know, covered up since last year in case they get low on snow and they'll need some of the snow to, to uh, either make the mountains harder or whether it's the, um, the ski slope, the ski jump, anywhere that they'll need snow. Half pipe uh, was a problem last time in Vancouver because it rained a lot, and uh, that's always an issue. But uh, I'm sure they're prepared. But obviously, as you said, there are a lot of political issues uh, with gay rights in, in, um, in Russia right now. So obviously that'll bleed over into, into the sports beat, and uh, we'll be covering a lot of that too, I'm sure. Doug Mills of, of the New York Times, one of the greatest photographers uh, I've ever had the pleasure of, of looking at their work, uh, covers the White House on his regular beat, but as you've heard in this conversation, covers so much more. One of the greatest jobs I think I could ever imagine having, and a, and a great guy too. Doug, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Josh, you're a gentleman. I really appreciate it. Miss working with you, and uh, it's great to hear your voice again, and uh, you do a great job at uh, SiriusXM, and I'm a big fan, so uh, thanks for having me. Thanks, pal. All right, bye. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.